Greetings, in Jesus' worthy name, a name which is above every possible name. That's not just a saying, that is the truth, the reality. And it's God's will we Experience that. Live that. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Actually, uh, David is reading Amos. We have been going through Nehemiah in our family devotion. That is the other side of the captivity where they were experiencing some of those promises that, um, that was at the end of Amos. Although I think some of those promises at the end of Amos have some future. I'm not sure. I'm not good in eschatology, but it seemed like there's something future in the mind of God, yet when he had the end of the book of Amos. So, yeah, my thoughts too went to a baptism today. I thought I don't want to go into some deep theological and controversial practical teaching today. I will at times, but not today. I felt to give a simple, encouraging message for young Christians and young, soon-to-be Christians, maybe. Something to bring clarity and encouragement in this sometimes confusing and discouraging world. So, for a... um, For a text, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will look at a prayer this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. And we cannot have too much prayer. I know we just had prayer. And I've blessed for that, Brian, for leading us in prayer like that. Let's just pause for another word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, you are Lord of all. And Lord, we are here this morning to both worship you, to yield our hearts to you, and to be inspired, Lord, to serve you while we are here upon this earth and also have your glory go out both from us and from to, uh, to others, Lord, who may not see and do not see your glory. But Lord, this morning, as we are here together, we just pray you'd help us to see more of your glory. Lord, help us. We are in need of you this morning. And I pray you would instruct us and inspire us for your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, is a prayer. And I'm going to read it. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There are many prayers in the Bible. There's prayers of Moses, David, Daniel, and the one that we read lately, Nehemiah, and Jesus, and Paul. Do you want to know how to pray? Study how godly men prayed in the Bible. Learn how they prayed when they had a victory. Learn how they prayed when they were in distress, David. Learn how they prayed when they faced failure and were uh, were repenting of their sins like Daniel and Nehemiah. You can learn a lot about a walk with God by studying the prayers of those who in the past walked with God. Paul was a pioneer missionary and a pastor. Could you say he was a pastor? I think he was, at least short times. He was a pioneer missionary. God arrested him for that. So what do you think his prayer focused on? Oh, that the people that he won to the Lord would experience more of God. That's what his prayer is focusing on. And uh, let's say that he, God, would grant you, young Christian and older Christians, that you would, according to the riches of his glory, be strengthened with might or with power. Might is power. By his spirit, in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that ye being rooted, grounded, established, settled, firm, you being grounded, firm, may be able to comprehend or see or there's another word that I'm not coming to my mind right now. Understand. Hmm? Understand. Understand. That's right. That would work. Understand with all the saints what is the breadth and the depth and the height and the length. I say that in not the right order. 
but it doesn't have to be in order because it's beyond our understanding anyhow. But it's not that we would love God more. It's that we would understand how much he loves us. That's what the prayer is for. So, there are a number of things or realities we can learn from this prayer. Paul is petitioning God for something for his people, for the Ephesian people. When you are petitioning something, you're asking for something. When you petition the government, you're making a request. Now, of course, when you go back to the... uh, the war for independence or the revolutionary war, depending which camp you're in, you use different names for that one. They petitioned the government, the government didn't respond, and then so finally they demanded the government. This is not a demand. This is a petition. This is a request. It is something that we don't have, but it's something that we want badly enough that we go through the proper channels to ask for. Paul bows his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not asking for himself, is he? Who is he petitioning God for? It's for his people. And as we look at it, it's for us too. And he's asking... That according to the riches, I actually got ahead of myself. I, I told you that already, that God, Paul is not asking that, that we would love God more. He's asking that we would understand God's love for us. That's one of the things. And one of the things he is asking that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that we would be strengthened by his might in the spirit in the inner man. Now I want to note a few things here. There are some cinnamons in these verses. Some terms are used synonymously. You, he asked that you be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man. So we have the inner man. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And there we have hearts. They're synonymous. Your inner man is your heart. Okay? You get that. And then there's some other uh, cinnamons here. Who is to dwell in that inner man? We have that the spirit in the inner man and that Christ may dwell in your heart. So we have the spirit and Christ, two cinnamons there. Now here I have a question. Doesn't the spirit come to live in the heart of every true believer at conversion? Romans says, if any man has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay? So, Christ and the spirit are one. And we know from the balance of scripture that the spirit comes when you get converted. So why does Paul ask that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? And he's talking to Christians. Why does God, Paul petition that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith? Personally, why would you and I as Christians need anyone to petition to God for us? 
since he already lives here, as we believe the scripture teaches. Well, I'm going to use an analogy this morning that I hope will bring some clarity to this, especially to young Christians among us. Some clarity as what is going on in the inner man after we become Christians. I'm going to talk about fixer-uppers. Anybody know what a fixer-upper is? Anybody in this congregation who's bought a fixer-upper? I know there's one there, and there's another one, yes, and there's another one. Okay. I think we all know what a fixer-upper is. I'm going to give you a title here. God is a fixer-upper. So, I never owned a fixer-upper house. What do you do with fixer-uppers? You fix them up, right? Okay, that's right. What are some of the realities as you fix up the house? What are some of the realities? It's messy, is that right? It's messy. It costs a lot, right? It takes a lot of time, right? Okay. And it's really not, it's really nice when it's done right. Okay. So we have some realities about a fixer-uppers. Now, Paul, oh, now, did any of you who bought fixer-uppers live in the house while you were fixing it up? Anybody do that? Nobody. You bought a fixer-upper, you fixed it up, and then you moved in. Okay. Would it make a difference if you lived in it? It would. Okay. Paul prays that God, Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. That implies that we are a house and Christ comes to live inside of us. So we become the dwelling place for Christ to live in. Now, are you, am I, in a pristine, turnkey, beautiful condition when Christ comes and, and lives in us? And we say no. Or does Christ live into a fixer-upper? What do you think, Alex? Does Christ, did he, is he moving into a fixer-upper? <laughs> he did when he moved into me. Now, most people, when they buy a fixer-upper, they fix it before they move in. They replace the sagging floor. They repair the holes in the walls. They take out the stinking carpet. They replace the leaking roof. Etc., etc., but not Christ. He moves right in to the middle of that mess when he moves in. Right in the middle. And, and he goes to sleep in that house, I'm thinking, you know, figuratively. And the next morning he wakes up and he's still in that fixer upper house, in that mess. All he needs to. All he needs is he needs the title to that house and he needs the keys to the front door. You give Christ the title, you give him the keys, and he comes in. The title means it belongs to him, you belong to him. 
And the front key means he has access. He can access you. That's what Christ needs. And then he comes and lives in. So he's living in the house. What does he do now? Now, what's wrong with a fixer-upper? Why do we call a fixer-upper a fixer-upper? If you were on the market for a fixer-upper, what might you encounter? Well, let me ask you this question. Can you always tell a fixer-upper house from the outside? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Sometimes the curb appeal of a house is pretty good. You look at the house, it's nice, siding's on, windows aren't out, can't see any leaks in the roof, the roof looks good. Sometimes it's obvious it's a fixer-upper. There's a tarp on the roof. <laughs> and, um, and you can see it's problems. You can see it. You can tell right off, this place needs attention. Well, that's how it is when Christ arrives in a life with interest in getting a title to our life and access to our life. Sometimes it's obvious we need help. Sometimes it's not obvious that we need help. Sometimes we're visibly in stress. Sometimes it's plain that we are headed for ruin. Somebody is going to need to come and do something to this house before the town comes and condemns it for demolition. Sometimes you can see that. Other times you can't. But if you go into that house that looks good on the outside, a fixer-upper, that people could have had pets that they didn't let out and weren't trained. They could have been renters who just knocked holes in the walls, yanked the doors off the cabinets in the kitchen. There could have been a nice roof, but it leaked around the chimney or some other places. The septic system could be bad, and you might not notice it until you get into the house and things are backed up with predictable results. But you only discover that upon closer inspection. Well, Jesus moves in to that house also. And he's the one who discovers the dog poop in the master bedroom closet. And he's content to live there and let it go, right? Not quite, not quite. Oh, what's the reason to buy a fixer-upper? Well, there's a number of reasons to buy a fixer-upper. I think some of you bought a fixer-upper because they were cheap. Is that right? They're cheaper, right? You wouldn't have to buy a fixer-upper. You could have bought a new house. 
So you bought a fixer-upper, but there are a lot of work and a lot of bother. Why didn't Jesus just go and buy a house that was ready to move in? Why didn't he do that? Well, there wasn't any. There wasn't any. Oh, there was. He has a home in heaven. And home in heaven is no fixer-upper. That is a pristine place. He could have stayed there and he could have enjoyed a beautiful house with no fixing-upping. He could have. Jesus had a place to live in where he did not need to go through the dirt and the dust and the smell and the rot to live in. So why does he ever want to come and live in a yucky, mucky, slimy, grimy place like you and I? Well, why would he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him, he knows the potential. But the potential's not in us. The potential comes through him, right? Okay, there you go. God loved the world, which is you and I. That's why he did that. That's why he left heaven. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So Christ came and still in the spirit comes today to get the title and the front door keys to fix her uppers and live in them. The baptism today is to publicly announce that Jesus has the title and the full access of another life. That's what the baptism today is, a public announcement. Young Christians... Older Christians were all fixer-uppers. Christ moves into us while we were a mess. Now what? Well, like was mentioned, Christ has the title to the house and the key to the front door. That means he has ownership and access. That's the new birth. The prior owner signed off the title to Jesus. Now, you might say, well, who was the prior owner? I suppose it was us, right? Now, we allow the devil access. He lived with us. He knocked the holes in the walls and broke the windows. Some of us just left him do it. Others of us tried to fix up after him, but we could never quite keep after the smell in that house we just couldn't get rid of. Somehow we could never get rid of that smell. And the roof. Well, we fixed the roof where it leaked, but two more sprang up somewhere else. And we would never get ahead. We were in despair. Then we heard there was somebody who specializes in fixer-uppers. And we sought him out, and he paid the purchase price on the cross. And he got the title, and he got the key, and he moved in. And the day, and moving day came, moving day came, and he moved in, into that mess. 
He bought the whole thing. That whole trouble. He bought the whole thing. Lock, stock, and barrel. It's his. A side note here. As I was studying, I came across a, a thought. Sometimes we have the idea that God is so holy, he can't look at sin. He can't stand to be in the presence of sin. We get that idea. Because God is so holy, he cannot stand the presence of sin. But actually, it's not quite that way. Let me, let me give you something, and maybe we can discuss this this afternoon. But actually, it's this way. Sin cannot stand to be in the presence of God. I think that's a more accurate description. When Adam and Eve sinned, who hid? Not God. Who came looking for them? Who came after those little sinners? God did. God was not afraid of them. God is not afraid of sin. But sin hides from God. That's the history of the human race. That's what we heard this morning already. God is pursuing his people. He makes the first move. He makes the last move. He calls. He empowers. He blesses. He forgives. And he loves. And he does this all through his son, Jesus. Today, if you are a Christian, or if you are not, God is still pursuing you. He wants you. The interesting thing about it is he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, but he wants me. But we need God. <laughs> he doesn't need us, but we need him. But many times, we don't want him. Because we have sin in our life. John 3.19 says, that's about the sinner, they rather... They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But for a Christian, we do not need to be afraid. Jesus will come in and take residence in a deteriorating fixer-upper house. Now, what is one of the first things that one of the first things that is needed is you're going to fix up a fixer-upper. What is the first thing that's needed? Can any of you have some ideas? What do you need? I know lots of money. I know that. <laughs> Not, that's all I'm looking for. Yes. Need Dean Stump. <laughs> need some help. <clears throat> How about a vision? You see this house. Fixer upper. And there's not a lot of vision there. You need to inject the vision. What you see now is sagging floorboards and broken kitchen cabinets. Begin to make plans. What do we want this house to look like when we're done? Since we're not tearing the house down, we're going to need to work with what we have. We're not going to tear the house down. We're going to fix it up. But there's an amazing amount of things you can do. You can move walls. You can replace flooring and windows. You can put on a new roof. You can waterproof the basement. 
You can repair or redo the plumbing and electrical system. You can replace the furnace or install a dual thermal system with AC. You can add on to the house and have a bigger kitchen or more bedrooms and or bathrooms. You can repair and paint the walls and replace the curtains and the drapes. Did I miss anything? (laughs) Oh, we didn't do anything yet. This is just a vision. (laughs) As Jesus comes in, he has a vision. I think I had another paper here I thought I might want to read. Maybe at this time. Yeah, I found this just this morning. A bold life, it's in a context, but uh, and I don't know who the blogger is right now, but uh, I'll read it. A bold life cannot be meaningfully measured by what one has and does, but with what one does with the little one has. All of us have dreams of the lives we'd like to live. The real challenge is to live the life God dreams for us. And this is a personal testimony of this, this man here. I said, I'm a cancer survivor, and I nearly died on three occasions apart from cancer. Life has not turned out the way I envisioned it. Honestly, there were embarrassingly long times when I deceived myself into thinking that life was about a fulfillment of my vision. I realize now that the only thing worth realizing is God's vision, and this requires a complete surrender. We cannot control the circumstances of our lives, but we can give to God, but we can give to God is the gift of our lives surrendered fully to him. Sometimes I succeed in this quest, and other times I royally fail. But if the story of my life is merely about me and my vision, then I am actually put me before God. God, however, must be before me. He must be before you. Just found that I thought it would be appropriate this time. Jesus has a vision for this fixer-upper. He has a plan for your life, and you can be sure that the end product, according to his plan, will be beautiful. You can be sure of that. But what lies between the vision and the end product? What lies in between there? Dirt. And if you want to think of physically, money and time. Are you sure you want Jesus to come into your life? Are you aware of the mess and the energy and the toil you will need to go through to fix up your house? Are you really ready to give up your life and your dreams and to trust someone called Jesus to modify your house? Maybe it would be just easier to stay in that old fixer-upper and live with the smell and the dents and the sagging floorboards and the leaking roof. Are you sure? In the short term, it seems easier to do that. 
Many times when I we have counselors, uh, when somebody responds at an altar call and they come for counseling for salvation, I ask them what they're there for, and they say they want to get born again, and I ask them why. Why? Are you sure? In the short term, it's easier not to. But in the long term, and that's where faith comes in. But the buyer, Jesus, come to your door. He wants to buy your house. And he has a vision. If you sell to him, he gets the title and the key. And he comes to live in your house with a vision. That's what he does. Now, like I had said, we never bought a fixer-upper, but we did a major remodeling of our house in 2008, and we lived in it while we remodeled. We lived in our garage for a month while a new kitchen was being built, and one thing I learned from that experience, it is really nice when it is done. I remember, after it was done, coming home from work after we moved back in. After the carpenters were all gone. And I would go to work, and of course you go to work and do your thing. You come home and you're expecting your same old house. And it's, wow, this is this new kitchen. It, it is really nice. It is, wow, I forgot, you know. It's nice. It's clean. It's bright. It's big. Our vision was realized and go back to our new master bedroom and with the uh, light lavender carpet and walls, all new, all beautiful. It made all the dirt and dust and money and time and inconvenience worth it. But it did start with a vision. And Jesus moves in with a vision and he begins to fix up. Critical things first. If the roof leaks, you got to fix it. You got to stop the damage that is being done to the structure. And you need to do the repairs that were made from the rotting sheeting and rafters and all those things. Now when Jesus moves in, he wants control of your mind. Would that be equivalent to a roof? The world has lots of rain and snow and ice that wants to come in. It is destructive if that gets access to your house, to your mind. So Jesus, first thing he does, he stops the access. He stops your worldly and evil thoughts. That's what he wants to do. He comes in. And then he also repairs the damage that was done by, by the, all those things coming in and begins to repair that damage. So the elements still beat against the house. You're still living in the same world. But now the leaks are stopped. No longer does the mind have free access to go wherever it wants to go. No longer does the mind feed on a diet of worldly elements. 
And for any leaks that develop, he repairs it quickly. That's the vision that Jesus has for that fixer upper house. Then at the other end of the house is the sewer system. No house is livable with a clogged plumbing or sewer. So Jesus unclogs or replaces the pipes and if needed, replaces the entire septic system like we did at our house just a few years ago. Why is that needed? Because any lived-in house generates waste that must be removed into another appropriate place, location. The waste that gets generated in a house cannot stay in that house. It has to have a place to go. So what's that like? I thought it would be called repentance. Ongoing repentance. We generate failures and shortcomings and sins on a regular basis. Could I say that? Which one I use perfect every day, any day. We react inappropriately. We say wrong things. We fail to do what we should do. We must have an avenue to flush down those things or our house will stink again in short order. Jesus says, well, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus fixes the plumbing so that we that have waste that can be removed, there is a channel where it can go through and it goes to an appropriate place outside the house. And as such, the house can stay clean through repentance, through confession. There's uh, dirt in the house that needs to be flushed out, so we repent of it. The Lord Jesus, back in the cross, back there 2,000 years ago, in a sense, is the sewer system. It's the place where the sins of the world go. He took it upon himself. And when our life is correct, we have a place to go with our failures. And it can get flushed out with repentance. Young Christians and older ones, all of us, that is a daily, continual event. It doesn't matter whether you wash your clothes or wash the dishes or you take a shower or you go to the bathroom. You need pipes and channels to take that waste out. And as we go through life and as we fail, we have repentance, we can confess, we can make things right through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our house can stay free of filth. We have a place to go with our sins. Now all this we can understand well, don't we? We all understand that we have a leaky roof or a leaky mind. Uh, that needs to be fixed. And we are very thankful for our plumbing that works throughout the house. It's not clogged. So that we can clear our consciences of dirt and filth. 
But we may not understand why Jesus wants to move this wall. And we definitely don't like the dirt and noise that he makes as he takes the crossbar or the crowbar and he begins to tear the old plaster out. And we don't understand. The re- leaking roof, yeah, we can't have roof. Uh, plumbing, oh, that's nice. Why are you tearing this wall out? It was less dirt before you changed this wall. It's worse. What a mess. In fact, there's probably lead paint in that dust. Or maybe asbestos. Or some of that old plaster had horse hair in it. I left Jesus to come into my house to fix it up. Now I'm not so sure. I'm just beginning to wonder if it's worth it. Not only is he tearing this wall out, he's tearing the floor out. I can't even walk in half of my house. And then he says he's going to tear out my kitchen. I know my stove only had one burner that worked, but at least it had one. He's saying for a while, I'm not going to have any. And my beautiful, dilapidated kitchen, how are you going to tear that out? I didn't realize it's going to be this hard. And then all those promises that he had gave, given to me, he said he's going to have new carpets, new drapes, new curtains, new furniture. Well, I haven't seen any of it. And I'm beginning to doubt whether I ever will. Do you ever feel there? Do you ever feel like you might be there ever? But then I talked to the owner. And he takes me back to the blueprint. He takes me back to the vision. And he reminds me what he's making. And he says to be patient. And he tells me, trust me. Trust me and let me continue to work. Galatians 6, verses 7 to 9. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't give up. Today you are sowing to the Spirit. Tomorrow you will get the fruit. There's another blog that uh, I read that was read to me actually this week. I don't think it was read to me because I needed it, but yeah, I do need it. I do need it. It's by Stephen Maxwell, and he has um, a regular blog to fathers. I'd like to read that. Who wants to read about self-discipline these days? 
Where's the grace in self-discipline? Now, he's talking about grace. He's talking about free grace as we think about free grace. What a restricting way to live, right? Self-discipline. It is okay to live without boundaries since we are free in Christ. Let's talk about grace, only grace, and forget about obedience and self-control. Isn't that what most want to read and the way they want to be encouraged? Yet all we have to do is look around us and observe the fruit of that sort of life. Diabetes, divorce, obesity, spiritual bankruptcy, heart disease, out-of-control children, and nothing accomplished at the end of a day or at the end of a life. Try to recall the last time you heard someone complain because they had too much temperance or self-discipline. What? You had never heard anyone complain that they had too much self-discipline? Me neither. Then he says, make your best friend a disciplined life under the control of the Holy Spirit. Learn to make difficult decisions and then execute them. Have consistent daily Bible times, bed time, wake up time, study time, exercise, and say no to temptations. Don't be like the guy who could say no to everything but temptation. There are lots of reasons why most choose to be average, but none of them is good. Be a great example to your children. So the Lord Jesus Christ is doing a work, and he says, don't faint. Don't give up. Today you are sowing to the Spirit. Today you are taking a difficult way. Today you are going against the flesh. Don't give up. There will be an end. There will be a harvest. There will be a reward. In time, there will be a finished house. It will be clean. It will be beautiful. It will be comfortable. But for right now, allow me, Jesus says, to do the work that needs to be done so that the vision can be realized. I won't get done today. We'll go to sleep tonight and we'll still have that mess. We'll get up tomorrow morning and we'll face that same situation. And it will get worse before it gets better. But trust me, we are going somewhere. You know, God's people have always needed to walk a walk of faith. That's how it is today. No matter if we are a new believer or whether we've been walking with God for 50 years, it is still a walk of faith. And so, by faith, we allow the Lord to continue his work on our house. The wall is removed. The floor gets repaired. The kitchen is torn out. The new cabinets are installed. The windows, doors are replaced. The healing cooling system is installed. Weeks and months go by and the work continues. And eventually the structural things are done. So you see, eventually maturity comes, right? Is that right? 
Then comes painting the walls, mounting the closet doors, installing the flooring, the linoleum and carpeting or whatever, hanging the drapes and the curtains. Now the house isn't dusty and dirty, but it smells like glue and paint. Renovation is still taking place. But eventually, the day comes when it's done. You go to bed in the evening, get up the next morning, and you don't have a fixer-upper anymore. You have a beautiful house. Now I know, as an analogy, I suppose that's heaven. I suppose that's heaven. Because we'll be fixer-uppers until we get there. But Christ is working on us. And I trust that in time, the structural things will get done in our life. I trust that happens in us. I I think that's called maturity. And then he works with the finer details until it's done. It looks nothing like the old house. The walls are a different color. They're not even at the same place. The kitchen is all new. Maybe it has a granite countertop. What do they have? <clears throat> Carpet, the windows, and roof, all new. But it's the same house. Why is it so different? was Jesus that made that difference. Don't underestimate what Jesus can do to your old house. But he did it with your permission. So I'm going to reread the prayer here. For this cause... I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Not alone. It says, with all the saints, experience this fixer-upper with each other. You know, sometimes we can see other people's fixer upper houses clearer than we can see our own fixer upper house. Is that true? That happened? Happens to me. And maybe, just maybe, my fixer upper might be fixed up a little more than someone else's fixer upper. So we are critical of their fixer-upper. Possibly, if we are critical of someone else's fixer-upper, there might be some more things wrong with our fixer-upper than we realize. But we should 
with all the saints, be able to comprehend with all saints what is Christ's love for us. Not that we love him more, although that is great, that is good, but that he would, that we would see how much he loves us. But then he says, it's actually not possible. He says that you would be able to see how much Christ loves us. And he talks about the breadth and depth and so on. But then he says, but it's, it's a paradox. He says, how much does Christ love us? It's like I heard somebody say, does he love us, what, three tons? A mile? Um, what are some other measurements? Um, so many gallons? <laughs> he uses linear length, breadth, height, and depth. So he uses, he said, just try to understand the, the vastness of Christ's love for us. Try to understand that. And then after that, he says, but you can't. The paradox. Impossible, which passes knowledge. Then Paul closes the prayer with a doxology. Now unto him, that would be the Father, that is able, now to him that is able to do, now to him that is able to do exceeding, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above. Above all. Above all that we ask. Above all that we ask or think. According to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church. Be glory to the Father. And we could ask, what is the power that works in us? That power is that Christ that is doing not just the vision, but he's doing the work. It's that power that is in us. We are fixer-uppers. But press on and let God do his work. It will be better than you can imagine. It will be. That's what he says. Above, beyond, beyond it, abundantly above. Can't even imagine it. Press through. Press on. Make the hard choices. Believe and obey when it's hard. And don't give up. And may God bless you.